Do you have any questions? Yes. <laughs> Okay, um, uh, the practices of metta and the practice of vipassana are considered two quite distinct practices, uh, which is not to say that any single being can't combine them in a way that, that works best for them. Um, metta is considered a concentration practice, along with compassion and sympathetic joy and equanimity. And one of the most distinctive signs of a concentration practice is that you have a chosen object, which in the case of the metta, you can say is the phrases, you know, should there not be a feeling and should there not be um, a very strong image, then certainly the bottom line is the phrases. Um, And you keep returning your attention to it. You just shepherd it back and you shepherd it back. Um, metta is, you might say, it's a very um, staged process, not artificially staged, but in the sense that uh, the first avenue of approach always in doing a concentration practice is to let go of whatever else has arisen and to come back to the chosen object. Um, And sometimes there's a great learning in that because the fact that we can let go of it and come back to this chosen object, almost through the back door is bringing forth a kind of insight of the transparency, the um, insubstantial nature, the lack of solidity of this very thing which has arisen. Uh, So it's not devoid of wisdom or insight, but we're not particularly investigating what has come up at all. That's the first approach. So grief arises, terror arises, anger arises, the first thing is we see if we can let go and come back to the phrases. That's not the same as suppressing it or, or trivializing it. It's, it's actually very empowering because uh, we see that aspect of whatever has come up. And sometimes we can't do that. Sometimes what has arisen is so strong that, in fact, we cannot let go. 
and come back to the phrases, in which case, you know, what you described is absolutely right. It's then opening to whatever that feeling is, um, or image, or whatever it was, uh, paying attention to it in as mindful and loving a way as possible until it subsides somewhat, and then going back to the phrases. So they are different, you know. You wouldn't, in metta, uh, right off the bat, when something comes up, turn your attention to it and try to open to it. The first avenue always is to see if you can let go of it and come back to the phrases. That's what a concentration practice is. And there is a distinction that's made between a concentration practice and a mindfulness or an insight practice. Um, it's not that you get no insight or wisdom doing metta or that you get no concentration or metta doing mindfulness. Uh, certainly they, they each bring forth a lot of the other. But the distinction is, is an important one um, because concentration tends to be a fairly fragile quality. It's somewhat dependent upon circumstances, somewhat. So that, for example, we all know that it's easier to concentrate in a quiet room than it is in a noisy room. Um, And so there can easily be a tendency in concentration to try to protect our space, you know, to uh, keep noise away and, and to somehow create the space where concentration is easier. Now, mindfulness can go anywhere. You know, we can be mindful of the quiet. We can also be mindful of the sound. We can be mindful of the annoyance that might arise in us as a result of the sound. We might not be mindful, but we can't honestly say, I couldn't be mindful. It was too nasty. It was too strong. It was too loud or whatever. And so mindfulness can go anywhere. We don't have to create a certain circumstance or a um, condition for mindfulness to arise. And that's why mindfulness is considered the basis of freedom. Because ultimately, we have to be able to practice or, or meditate or, or be present everywhere. You know, not just in a, a kind of specialized circumstance. And so while concentration is uh, a tremendous benefit, it's very healing, it's very empowering, Um, it's really the unification of our being rather than being scattered all over the place. So that's that's a huge, huge thing. Uh, In the particular sense that I just used mindfulness, it's not considered freeing in the same way because it's it's more dependent and more fragile. The... um, even in doing vipassana, let alone in the mix between metta and vipassana, um, even in doing vipassana, some of the great uh, joyful moments come from concentration because we're developing concentration at the same time we're, we're working with mindfulness. So the sort of dazzling effects, you know, and, and the the lovely things often come from concentration, and that's that's wonderful. You know, it's it's not to um, demean those in any way, but they're also coming and going. And so the bottom line is not to have a practice of a positive practice that's dependent on good concentration. 
because that will be very limited to the times that we have good concentration. But it's really to be able to be mindful of absolutely everything. And that's freeing. Yeah, yeah. No, that that may be, and it's really a dual practice in that both the concentration side and the meta side are being are being cultivated. Um, but remember the the injunction, uh, for example, to do it in the easiest way possible, to do meta in the easiest way possible. You know, not to try to open up to the most terrible person in your life right away. You know, it's, it's a very um, moderated approach so that we don't get too overwhelmed. You know, and that's a little different than the sense of mindfulness, which in its very nature from the beginning can go anywhere. You know, so it's not that one is... Uh, they're both going to support each other. You know, both the metta and the vipassana really support each other and enrich each other. Yeah. It's a mindfulness practice, but it's um, we tend not to be, we tend to be more grounded in a smaller field of mindfulness rather than uh, everything. Um, only in the sense that you don't want to be walking along mechanically, not feeling your uh, movement feet and legs and so on and just kind of lost in thought so we say if something really strong is happening other than the feeling of the, the movement then stop just pay full attention to whatever it is you know, thinking or feeling or seeing or whatever and then pick it up again you know, and keep going I think one will get it in any case. Uh, well, you don't have to, actually. <laughs> Well, uh, I mean, I wrote the book, you know, so <laughs> I'm, the, I'm a funny person to ask that to. Uh, um, 
I think you will get everything just from doing Vipassana in that clearly the purification of the mind from the forces of greed, hatred, and delusion. I mean, what's left, you know, but <laughs> loving kindness and compassion and sympathetic joy and, and equanimity. So um, the uprooting of defilements or the um, transformation of one's relationship to defilements certainly uh, without any kind of contrivance or predetermination or decision is going to fill one's being with love and compassion and sympathetic joy and equanimity. That's inevitable. Uh, so I really do believe that from doing Vipassana and from the, um, the loosening up of one's identification with those defilements, inevitably there will be a full flowering of metta and so on. And one does those practices, the Brahma Viharas, for a number of different reasons. Uh, one is for the concentration, because their concentration is not a flimsy thing. It's hugely empowering to have a sense of stability in one's own being, to have um, that degree of happiness that is not dependent upon another person, it's not dependent on being in a nice place, it's not dependent on any external situation, it's coming from the unification of one's own mind, and it's enormous, you know, it's an enormous recognition that that's within. Uh, one does it for the healing sense of the unification of the mind. I'd say power and healing are really the two aspects of concentration, that, that give us a lot. And one does it for the particular cultivation of a loving heart that um, is, you know, rather than, in a sense, wait for the gradual eradication of greed, hatred, and delusion, you're saying, okay, this is very important to me. This is transformative. This is um, the... You know, it's like the Buddha is said to have taught metta as the antidote to fear. And so all of the qualities we associate with fear, the hesitation, the shrinking, the withdrawing, um, self-deprecation, are replaced in a way over time with all of the force and the power and the, uh, the beauty of love. And so it's, um, it's like a direct trade, in a way, energetically, in one's being. And uh, there's some statement the Buddha made, which is something like, um, the forces of skillful mind states, you know, or um, light, you might say, like love and compassion and so on, are much stronger than the forces of the defilements because the, the defilements like greed and hatred and delusion and fear and jealousy and all that may arise and temporarily suppress love and compassion and so on, but they can't actually dissolve them, they can't uproot them. Whereas if you develop enough mindfulness and awareness and love and compassion, it actually can disintegrate the forces of fear and anger and so on. And so 
all of that cultivation, all of that development works to to actually dissolve uh, the tremendous momentum of our conditioning toward particularly fear and anger. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, the sustaining of attention is the quality that I once translated as rubbing. That literally means rubbing what's happening. You know, so it's it's that sense of um, getting in there, you know, and being in contact with, and rather in the state that you describe, rather than try to find a single object in a flood of rapidly changing maybe very subtle mental events, um, the object becomes the flood itself. So it's like the, the feeling of chaos or rush or explosion or dissolving or whatever, that becomes the object of attention rather than trying to pinpoint you know, a particular um, momentary changing object which is too much. So that's why in those times we say open up because uh, you won't, first of all you won't succeed and second of all it will feel very bad to try to, to pinpoint a particular object but really just open up and take in the bigger picture. It's like the flood, the chaos, the anxiety. Hmm? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, you know, if you think of sustaining as rubbing, it's what it is. <laughs> so, okay, it's time to walk. Thank you. You want to come up? Or I'll see you later. Okay. Take a few deep breaths, relax your body. And allow the breath to become natural so you're not trying to force it or control it in any way. Feel your body sitting on the chair or the cushion. Hear the sounds that may be arising naturally in your field of awareness. And get a sense of this unforced quality. The sound, feeling of the body is simply appearing. You don't have to make it better, you don't have to change it.
And just so with the breath. You can allow your attention to settle on the place where you feel the breath most distinctly. Perhaps the nostrils with the movement of the air. heat and cold, vibration, tingling, whatever you might be experiencing, or perhaps the rising and falling movement of the chest or the abdomen, stretching, movement, pulsing, releasing, whatever it might be. being relaxed and alert. When something arises that is strong enough to take your attention away from this feeling of the breath, an image, another sensation in the body, an emotion, a thought, Whatever it is, become aware of that experience, open to it, recognize it, can make a mental note of it. After some time, see if you can let go of it and return the attention to the feeling of the breath. Don't need to struggle or try to create anything special. It's rather the very gentle and natural movement of awareness.
Do you have any questions? Yeah. Um, earlier in the retreat, when I was feeling pretty deprived, I contacted Australia and told everybody I was being called prisoner here from the people they've seen shopping. So the difficulty is that um, it's either total control, <laughs> and I've recently lost 50 pounds, so that was pretty control, or else it's total wanting hedonism. And how do you find the middle path of chocolate? <laughs> uh, you might consider uh, as the question was uh, about finding the middle path particularly uh, in terms of some chocolate that she received after a call for help <laughs> to Australia um, <laughs> the uh, well, the middle path is always a delicate thing. Um, and uh, a friend of ours once, in, in commenting on our tendency to try to find the middle path, uh, he talked about how we actually seemed to be walking the upper middle path. <laughs> you know, we tend to like things a little comfortable and... Uh, pleasant and and enjoyable and of course I mean that's natural um, I don't think you need to get into a uh, a mind state of punishing yourself on the other hand one of the great things about a retreat experience is its simplicity and and that continual uh, relaxation into simplicity and usually in our lives especially in Western culture where we have so much opportunity to gratify our desires. Um, it's barely a second and a half between the arising of the desire and the move to gratify it uh, because the means are often at hand. I mean, you were able to make a phone call, <laughs> for example. Uh, and one of the things we really try to do in retreat is... Um, simplify enough so that we can actually be with our desires as they arise. You know, not to be uh, afraid of them, uh, not to feel overwhelmed by them, not to be condemning of them, but to actually see the nature of it. You know, so we, we try to remove ourselves from that pattern of instant gratification. Um, so I would suggest, perhaps, that at least for some quantity of what you've received, give it away. Yeah, yeah thank you. <laughs> Who said that? <laughs> that was very good. I'd give it away soon, it sounds like. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we do have fun here, don't we? <laughs> well, 
<laughs> that always helps. <laughs> Yeah, uh, the question was about whether mindfulness is instantaneous or it can last, um, because we talk a lot about continuity of mindfulness. Mindfulness is a, as we use the word, is a quality that arises from moment to moment. So when we talk about continuity, it's not um, somehow getting it and keeping it or getting it and prolonging it. It's a question of renewing it. Uh, that's one way of viewing it. We renew it from moment to moment. So it's not like something we are carrying, uh, but something that we are bringing forth from moment to moment. Another way of looking at it is um, if we are not caught up in grasping aversion or delusion, then we will be mindful. And so uh, what we are relinquishing from moment to moment is are those habits of mind which have us trying to uh, interfere or manipulate or hold on or push away what is happening. And so that's why uh, meditation is sometimes talked about as non-doing. You know, it, it means not doing the things that we ordinarily do. So um, habitually, the grasping and the aversion and the, the spacing out and the getting confused and all of that. So uh, you can view it either way. You know, as mindfulness is something that we renew from moment to moment, or you can see it as what we will relax into when we're not doing the ordinary things that we, we so readily or habitually do. Yeah. Um, I'm seeing that... Uh as uh, mindfulness shifts to different things, that um, when uh, sometimes I reach something that seems feels painful, feels difficult, uh, and seems to be with it relatively clearly, and then start to move away and back with the breath, whatever, um, which feels okay. Uh, it's hard at times to tell whether. Um, there's really some balance or equanimity in leaving that difficult thing, or whether, in fact, uh, I'm avoiding it. It's, it's, it's hard to know. I, I keep playing back with it. It's, sometimes it's okay, but several times it seems to not be very clear. Okay. D did you hear the question? Um, I think two things. One is there is a growing sensitivity to whether we are pushing something away or uh, we are actually in a move toward balance, simply letting go of it for a while. Um, we do use the mental noting sometimes, you know, as that kind of feedback system. If you hear the, the dreariness in the note and the dislike in the note, then, then that's some indication. Um, I think, if anything, we tend to have uh, 
Well, we have as much of a tendency to linger too long with unpleasant experiences as we do to try to cut them off. Um, and it is, generally speaking, wise to continue to leave it, to come back to the breath, uh, just for uh, the sake of opening the mind and refreshing the mind and uh, getting some tranquility and some energy. Um, I can remember when Upandita, uh, our Burmese teacher, was talking about physical pain. And he said that you should not stay with the painful feeling for too long, not because that's bad um, or you'll, you'll have bad meditation because you've done that, but because it tends to be exhausting. You know, so he said, just be with it and leave it. Consciously move your attention to something that is neutral. And that's one of the functions of a primary object, is that it is basically a neutral experience where there's no struggle. Um, you know, so he said, go back and forth. Don't stay with it for too long. And you know, those of you who've heard his tapes or have sat with him know that he's, he's quite the warrior teacher. You know, so when I was sitting in this room... Uh, and I heard those words come out of his mouth. I thought, oh, you know, that really must be true. Um, you know, but we can get into a mind state of thinking, oh, well, you know, here I am up against it, and I have to stay with it and stay with it and stay with it and stay with it until I break through. Uh, and that's, generally speaking, too exhausting. You know, it's just too tiring. And so I would leave it, um, whatever difficult, painful, emotional, physical, whatever it is, state, leave it, and then go back to it, you know, if it's still there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wonder if we get a little precise about mindfulness. Uh, we have two <laughs> models. One is the active mode, aiming, connecting, sustaining. Just so mindfulness active goes out and meets. It. And the other one, we're just we're sitting back in repo, so it's sort of a reflective quality. And it's not consciousness, it arises with consciousness. So, precisely, what is mindfulness? <laughs> mindfulness is both. Um, I think if you go back to the example that uh, Michelle used, I believe, earlier in the retreat of the fork and the potato, um, there is a quality in mindfulness of what we call aim. You know, it means that we are aiming the attention, just like we aim that fork at the potato, toward this very moment. If you're sitting and feeling the breath and you are uh, tremendously concerned about an experience that has already gone by, you won't actually be present for that breath. If you are gearing up or trying to get ready in anticipation for even the very next breath, you won't be really feeling this breath. And so there is a quality of aim that is essential as to whether it's more active going out and meeting the experience of the moment or more uh, back, you might say, more relaxed. Um, It actually is a in a practical level, it's a question of balance. You know, if you or having a tendency to have the fork just hang there in your hand without connecting strongly enough to the potato, then what you really need is to come forward. 
you need more of a sense of energetic connection. Um, we also can have that very uh, strongly conditioned tendency to take the fork and bash it through the potato, you know, maybe even through the plate, and have everything go flying. There can be a great tendency to uh, be too forceful, to get a stranglehold on the breath, um, to be leaning forward into our experience, to uh, be trying to change it somehow. To And uh, the great balance is um, really to move back, you know, to, to, to go into... Um, a mode of relinquishment or cessation of all of those, those tendencies which have to do with trying to control what our experience is. And so I think you can use either model uh, skillfully and that uh, in a personal level, in a practical level, it depends on what is bringing the greatest balance. I guess I probably, probably question, but I'm having a, a little difficulty right this moment distinguishing consciousness mm-hmm. and mindfulness. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, they say... Con- be conscious but not mindful. Yeah, yeah, sure. How would that work? Um, mindfulness is usually used in the specific sense of a quality of awareness that is not grasping, is not aversive, and is not deluded to what is going on. And so... Uh, we are conscious whenever we are hearing or seeing or tasting or touching or smelling or, uh, you know, having a, an experience um, of a feeling or an emotion or a thought or whatever. We're not always mindful of that in the sense of not, okay. not getting those well, things. The mental factor of mindfulness arises, the others are sort of dispersed. Maybe yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. They don't coexist. Then. No, they don't coexist. Okay. <laughs> no, no. They only coexist in the sense of we are able to be mindful of greed, hatred, or delusion. But then the greed, hatred, delusion are kind of like not on this side of things. They're on that side of things. Uh, they're not distorting or affecting, you know, how we're looking. Uh-huh. Okay, yeah. I've been wondering about this It seems to me that becoming, there certainly is becoming aggressive. There certainly is becoming not wanting. But the illusion seems to be a place of spacing out. Therefore, I don't see the grasping or the not grasping in it. So it almost seems like an antidote to becoming. Okay, the question was about delusion, and I'm a good one to answer it. In, in the Buddhist um, psychology, there are uh, different ways of coming to understand whether you're uh, predominant, if you have a predominant habit of mind, you know, whether that's grasping aversion or delusion, and mine is definitely delusion. So uh, there is that quality of spacing out in delusion. Sometimes um, the literal translation of the word from Pali is uh, to be stupefied. And, and so there's confusion, there's perplexity, there's uncertainty, there's um, drowsiness, there's dullness, there's a lot. And uh, 
one of the ways that, I mean, clearly it obscures a connection with the present moment. It often arises in people, uh, all of us, when our experience is basically neutral, when it's not strikingly pleasant or unpleasant. You know, we, we don't really feel like we're here. Uh, we're just kind of spaced out. Um, one of the ways in which it includes uh, grasping is in the form of ignorance, which I talked about a little bit last week, that um, because of the deluded mind, we can easily get tunnel vision in a situation and not uh, be open and clear in terms of all of the possibilities. So there is that sense of collapse of attention. It's also very common in delusion to get attached to something, um, some view, some opinion, uh, some perspective on things, because the example that's given is like being out in a storm where there's just so much going on and you can't, you can't um, connect in some way because you're too spaced out. You're out in a storm and you look for shelter anywhere you can find it. And uh, if you find something, anything, you'll hold on really tightly to it. And a lot of sectarianism, actually, you know, in the teachings, that's, that's where a lot of sectarianism and dogmatism is said to come from, is that uh, kind of not knowing and not certainty at the core, and then some feeling of, like, I've got to find something to hold on to. And, and so there's, there's a very strong holding. Uh, with wisdom... Interestingly enough, it's, it's not taught that there's the kind of attachment to view, you know, in, in the sense of exclusivity and sectarianism. So, it is time to walk. Thank you. Enjoy the chocolate. Yeah. <laughs>